today's read a moment of silence midnight three by sister soldier chapter 11 wealth my first wife a reflection she comes from wealth my first wife as soon as you see her you'll know black hair dark pretty eyes and thick lips slim and sleek her walk is mean her beauty is evocative making whoever is looking feel something her fashion is elite feminine and flawless you can't imitate her she's a bergdorf goodman kind of girl only the wealthy shop there even many of those who consider themselves fashionable have never even heard of it. It is so exclusive that it's too expensive a place to even window shop. My first wife. She's selective, extreme. It's all or nothing. She may go into a store with thousands of pieces in inventory and come out with only a scarf or a pair of stockings or sunglasses or a badass hat. She doesn't care what's popular. She cares if it's the finest fabric that feels and looks good on her skin instead and if it complements her unique artistic sense of style. And she really loves it if it's hand-tailored, one-of-a-kind, custom-designed, almost impossible to find anywhere else. She'd rather search for hours, days, months, or even a year before she finds it. Her heels and her kicks are all incredible on her small feet, nude in only a pair of her $6,000 leather thigh-high boots, and I'm captured by her aerodynamics. She's a Ferrari, modest, quiet, mostly silent. She's foreign. She doesn't speak English, but her emotions, body, and gestures speak my language. Lovable and sweet, there is no conceit in her, and she gives in to me eagerly. She's not a fighter. She's not a pushover either, yet those few who know wonder why she agreed with my having a second wife who came along at the hottest temperature of her and my young, young marriage. But my first wife is moved by feelings, her feelings, my feelings, and she would give me anything I wanted, even if she believed she would be slighting herself. I chose her. I love her. She's mine for life, no matter the storm that swirls around us. I'll work for her. I'll build for her. I'll protect her. A motherless daughter. Her mother returned to Allah when Akimi was only 13 years young. She's vulnerable. Born in Kyoto, Japan, she embodies the best parts of their culture calm, quiet, beautiful, well-mannered, organized, intelligent, and highly capable, yet 
in her veins boils the hot blood of Korea, which causes her to be deeply sensitive and very emotional, two traits that result in her being an ingenious, soulful artist who, at her young age, has been globally recognized and even had her award-winning art displayed at MoMA. But for me, mostly she's soft, sensual, and sweet. The first woman I have ever loved in a different kind of way than the pure love I have for Uma, my mother. I protect her the same way I protect my mother. Her complicated family history gave me my first reason to travel to Asia and to fight to snatch her back from her father who snatched her from me after our marriage was already in place and after I spilled my seeds of life in her womb repeatedly. My first wife was the reason to take down the fence that was already in place at our queen's house and to build the solid cement block wall. Also for her, before leaving for Asia, in the backyard of our vacant new house, I planted a plum tree, which I expected to blossom over time along with our love and to represent how sweet her love is to me. I knew the new roots planted in the earth would be shaky at first, but then would go down deep, thicken and spread, and would give rise to a strong tree that would last longer than a human life and bear much fruit. Her wealth. She gave it all up for me, actually. Her Japanese father cut it off as punishment for her choosing to be the 16 years young wife of a young Muslim man born in Sudan, land of the blacks, who now resides in Brooklyn, New York. Her father tried everything to keep her to himself. In Japan, he owned houses and buildings and businesses and even a mountain. He gave her everything a father could give to his daughter. A private school education, chauffeured cars, cash flow, and credit cards, and free roam of the earth. He even tried to give her the sky. Still, having fallen in love with me, she traded everything her father had ever provided for her, including his love and affection. In exchange, She got a young husband, a young marriage, a mutual and true love, and twins in her womb, alhamdulillah. Because of love, my first love, and because she is my wife, my first wife, I knew and I know just how hard I had to work what I had to build and provide to convince myself that even though she is already my wife for life, I deserve her. I had never planned to be her father's enemy, had gone about loving her and marrying her the proper way. I felt good about that fact, but it stood out in my mind that I had not built or accumulated anything to close anything close 
to the wealth of her father, could not provide her with anything close in value to the items and surroundings she was accustomed to. Her father, on the other hand, was a wall of pride, and his pride was much stronger than his love. His pride caused him to refuse to face me man to man, to refuse to listen to his daughter's heart or her words and wants. His pride also caused him to lose, but I knew and I know somehow he will come again. I don't fear this, but I don't take it lightly either. Young, I'm just laying the foundation for our wealth, and I know what true wealth is. Some men think if they have a heap of hundreds that they've done it. Others need thousands to feel secure. Some men think that a hundred thousand means they're rich and set for life, and then there are the millionaires. Wealth is something different. It is what I am aiming for. True wealth is when a man has freedom of faith, high quality, loyal women, gold, land, and property, and healthy, useful, grateful, and secure children. The money a man accumulates should be backed up by something precious like gold. A man is not rich if spending what he has in his hand or carries in his pocket or wallet means he has gone broke. Or if he can't own his own land and house without fear of bankruptcy. A man is not rich if he has all the gold in the world and his wives are trash. Furthermore, a man is not wealthy if he has been warred on and somehow been stripped of all of his land, property, money, and gold and has no faith to guide him in his battle and no family to protect so that he will be inspired to build and come again. I learned these truths from my father. Because of him, wealth is not foreign to me. I was born into wealth. And even though I got separated from my wealth and had to start back at the beginning, wealth is not something I think is not within my reach. For me, becoming wealthy is expected, even though it's not automatic. So I'm checking myself, taking inventory. I'm monitoring my pace so far and my process. Since my return from Asia, my mind had become even more clear. My standards were raised even higher. Marrying the right women, planting my seeds, and securing my family, I achieved that. Yet I knew that securing a family is an ongoing, everyday thing, an awesome responsibility, especially when I am the only male. As a team, Uma and I had built our own business, Uma Designs. 
And even though we both have other jobs, we've worked at our jobs separately while running the business that we own together for seven years. We purchased our land and our house some months ago. We bought it in full, no mortgage. It's ours completely. We don't have to worry about missing a mortgage payment and having the bank that issued us the loan stepping in and taking over, becoming the actual owners of our house. Because of course, if you have a mortgage, the bank is the actual owner of the house until you pay it off with interest over 30 years. Our new queen's home is not in any way comparable to or even similar to the huge estate that my father built and owned and that we all lived in. Still, it is what I could manage so far. It is a blessing under the circumstances of our living in America without our Sudanese wealth. We still have to pay property taxes, but the monthly amount is very small, especially when compared to the going monthly rent for any apartment in all five boroughs of New York. And of course, when you are renting, you don't own shit. At any moment, the real owners can decide to change your apartment into a condo and throw you out or keep everything the same, but raise the rent so high you gotta throw yourself out. When you rent, you always have to seek permission for things like who and how many people can live there or how many people can share one room and even simple things have to be requested like changing the locks or getting a new set of keys or even permission to hammer or hang curtains or paint the walls. That's a constant reminder that the place where you live does not belong to you. While I was away in Asia, my Uma and sister stayed in the basement apartment of the father of Sudana, Mr. Ghazali. I rented that space from him even though we had just purchased our new home. Our new home wasn't cleaned and sanitized, cleared out, repaired, painted, or furnished yet. It had no telephone or even power. All of that was my responsibility. But I had to move swiftly to Asia to get my first wife. So it made sense to provide a clean, organized, furnished apartment for my Uma in a house owned by an Islamic Sudanese family where she and my sister were adored. The basement apartment was separate with its own door and locks and phone so I did not have to worry about anything improper. And Mr. Ghazali owned a taxi car service so in addition to paying him rent for the month, I also paid him in advance of my leaving to drive my Uma to work and back home each day. This was the only way I could have peace of mind while traveling. Now, my liquid cash flow is tight. Uma and I had emptied our bank account in order to buy our new home. I was only able to travel to Asia because my father had given me, before we left Sudan and moved to Brooklyn, three diamonds to keep forever or to use in case of emergency. The diamonds were valued at a minimum of $15,000 for each one. Even though I did not want to sell them, they were heirlooms that I treasured and hoped to pass on to my future sons. 
I did sell one in order to have cash to set my Uma up properly before leaving and to obtain my airline ticket and handle all travel expenses. A trip planned for one week turned into a necessary adventure that stretched over a month. Over there, I spent money and I made money, returning with $10,000 remaining in my hand, plus the two diamonds I never sold and a second wife. $10,000 is not a lot of money. Maybe it would be if I were not married or expecting or had not just purchased a new home. Maybe if I just had to spend it on myself. I could coast and chill for a while. That wasn't the case. So I'm pressed, but not exactly under an unbearable pressure. Uma has her own chest of precious jewels, even though she had been relying on her small job salary until we were able to rebuild our treasury by working Uma Designs. She would not sell her jewels. They are each an intimate memory to her. And each one comes with an amazing story of my father and our Sudanese life and lifestyle. She had parted with only one of his memories. Right before I left for Asia, she handed me my father's Rolex. It was a date chest with a cracked bezel that I had never knew she had. It seemed like she wanted to part with it for her own reasons. Fortunately for me, while in Asia, I sold the Rolex to a Namibian jeweler in exchange for diamond bangles and a diamond ring, all the jewels I wanted in order to propose properly to my second wife. I am aware that it was and is my father who gave me the means and the gifts that secured both of my wives. I want to be the same caliber of man that my father is to my future sons, inshallah, and I am striving. Building the wall cost me $2,000. Of course, I didn't have to pay myself for working on it. All work and supplies were included in that sum. That was a big bite right there. There was also the furniture we purchased and the cost of the security gates I ordered for the ground-level windows. I settled my bill with Mr. Kazali upon my return so that while I scheduled to turn on the power and water and cleaned up and prepared the new house to make it good enough for Uma, she could stay on there. My first week back home, my wives enjoyed the overpriced hotel I checked us into upon our return from Asia. After all, Mr. Ghazali had two unmarried, young, but grown sons in his house. Although they were Muslim men, still, I did not want them encountering my wives all of the time. Sometimes, one or both of my wives would be visiting with Uma at the Ghazali's basement apartment, or chilling with me in Queens for some hours as I prepared the house. I was working early morning to late night every day in the new house, even before Amir and Chris and I began building the wall and before reporting back to my job in Chinatown. My decision to ask Uma to give notice to her job at the textile factory was an expensive one. 
because her wages there covered my sister's private schooling and our family health care for many years. However, I had a plan to expand the business we owned, our products and services, and to free my mother of being a wage earner any longer. I wanted her to be able to work from home on her own schedule, to be comfortable, and to just breathe and enjoy life, her new daughters-in-law, and of course, her daughter, my sister Naja. I had also decided that I was going to grow and expand my vending business and discontinue working my job as well. It was all a gamble, but I was betting on myself and planning on winning. Down to $4,800, my first wife and I had an appointment at an obstetrician gynecologist. A female Korean doctor recommended by her mother's side of her Korean family. I had no idea how much the doctor would charge for the safe medical delivery of our twins. With Akimi, only three months pregnant at the time, I knew I had time to stack some paper. Although I was feeling the pressure, I was not a desperate man. Somebody was working my spot in Chinatown that chose Fish Market. I expected that to happen when my trip to Asia had stretched to longer than a week. I had phoned Cho from overseas, not wanting to stick him. His weekend business began on Friday morning and was always packed with hard work to do and plenty of customers. That was my shift. Early Saturday morning, June 14th, instead of giving some sort of explanation or excuse for my extended absence, I did the only thing the Chinaman respects. Washed my hands, threw on my rubber apron and the welder's glasses I used for eye protection, and fell right into the rhythm of the work. I was carrying styrofoam crates filled with fish, shovels of crushed ice, empty barrels and tanks for the live fish, boxes of plain brown and waxed wrapping paper, and cartons of hundreds of plastic bags for the customers, and hosing down the prep tables. I was letting loose live eels in the tank, live scallops and clams and live crabs and lobsters, each in their own buckets and barrels. I was gutting and scaling sea bass, Branzino, snappers, sea bream, rainbow trout, porgies, and whiting in a variety of types for the display. The Chinese customers preferred to buy their fish fresh, as in still alive. The Americans were usually in a rush and wanted it fresh but dead, quickly cleaned and packaged and ready to go. We worked like that till all of the customers were served all of their choices prepared to all of their specifications. Specifications. Heads off, heads on, gutted, cleaned, split, sliced, or filleted, and packaged and wrapped nicely for them to carry home without any leaking. I worked that Saturday double shift for two reasons. One, 
I didn't work yesterday, which was Friday, the day I finished cleaning and setting up the empty house in Queens to bring my family home to because I wanted to speak with Cho after we closed up his shop. I wasn't charging him for my labor for the day. I wanted to make a new business relationship with him instead. My double shift free labor was an investment in his ability to hear me out and consider what I was saying while understanding and respecting my growth as a man. He chose the spot for dinner. It was his regular spot. The Chinese did not dine in the same places or in the same manner or off the same menu as their tourist customers. So we were in a back room of a restaurant whose red canopy boasted bold Chinese letters, which I could not read. I could, however, read the English lettering in small print beneath the Chinese letters. It read, Chuan Tu Jiu Jia. I learned from the restaurant business card that it meant spring restaurant. The room where we sat looked like a pig temple. There were pig heads and pig carcasses and even pig statues on mantles and dead ducks with stretched out necks and damn, I didn't want to be rude, but I'm comfortable working with all kinds of seafood, but would not be comfortable working in a butcher shop that was not halal and had pork displayed everywhere. Really, I did not want to consume anything in there, but I did not want to insult Cho either. So my mind was swiftly putting together a plan where I could satisfy my faith and his culture without compromise. I thought I was meeting with Cho for dinner, but when we arrived, there were 10 other Chinamen standing in a huddle as though they were waiting for him. Cho and I joined them. I was just following and listening and watching. The ten men were looking at Cho as if to ask, who the fuck is he? I heard Cho either introduce me or define me as Jin Lu Li. Then he turned towards me, put his hand on my shoulder and said in English, very hard waka. I knew then that was my name in those men's minds. At least it would be the description that separated me from whatever they thought based on my appearance and their prejudices. The Chinese don't call each other by names directly. The Sudanese and other Africans and Asians are the same on this issue. Most customers who were Chinese and regulars, if they were younger than Cho, called him Shushu meaning uncle. When a twelfth Chinaman arrived, the eleven others greeted him with great excitement and respect. He was clearly older than all of the rest. His arrival inspired a chorus of Ni Ma, which is the greeting our Chinese customers used every day, meaning, how are you? Ni Ma Shushu was their way of showing him respect as a man older than each of them. The old Chinaman responded, Jin hao, meaning very well. But then he added, Les la, which I did not know the meaning of, but when he made a face and body gesture, 
I felt, he was saying, he was really tired. The other 11 Chinamen guided him to his seat, and not until he sat did the rest of us sit at the round table. I was the last to take a chair and the youngest in our group. The Chinese sit shoulder to shoulder, even though our dinner table was wide and round. They don't waste space or air. It was an adjustment for me, having a business meeting at a table with 12 Chinamen who had nothing to do with the business I wanted to conduct with Cho. Each of them was either alone or with one or two others, but either way, we were all together, each doing our own thing in our own language. The food was placed on a small circular revolving table that was in the center of the huge round dinner table. One waiter came out and bowed to his guests, which was surprising because I'd never seen the Chinese bow. I always saw the Japanese and Koreans do so. I figured it was because he was a server. Right behind him came another Chinese male waiter carrying live fish in a clear plastic bag with water inside. I recognized the fish as sea bass. The men examined them from the sitting position and the elder gave the waiter the thumbs up. Chopsticks and no forks. I had been in this position many times in my Asian travels. I'm comfortable with chopsticks, even though I don't have the same ease in using them that the Chinese have. Now, all of the food dishes, including mifa, rice, pigutong, spare rib soup, hukajo, pork belly, chingjongyu, steamed sea bass, shanghai kai, bok choy, Silgua, stir-fried vegetables, and chigua, watermelon, had been placed in the center, and each of us had our own bowl for white rice. The elder Shushu spun the table, serving himself what he wanted. He called out, Kwaiju, which seemed to mean, let's eat. Everyone then took from the revolving table what they wanted. It was unique and interesting and a bit emotional watching each of the 11 Chinamen take some vegetable from their uneaten dish of food and place it into the bowl of the elder as a show of both love and respect in all of their actions. It was as though they were constantly conscious of distinguishing one man's age and position from the others, all the while remaining unified without a trace of envy resentment or competition. I selected my foods last. I chose rice, steamed fish, and watermelon. But I left all of the soups and vegetables alone because of the pork I knew was inside or could be inside as a seasoning. And like all of the men at the table, I drank nucha, which is green tea. Cho was straight-faced and slurping soup. I couldn't be sure, but I think he thought it was funny allowing me to follow him in here and fall in. Joe, I said. He grunted. I have a new business, I told him. You work fish market? You no work fish market? He asked me. 
Instead of answering, I pulled out the neatly folded pamphlet which contained photos of the vending machines. I had used a razor to perfectly slice out from the Japanese catalog only the images I wanted to show without revealing any Japanese letters or even English lettering or contact information. I would like to put this machine outside of your store, I said, handing him the photos. It was the same as though I had handed it to each of them at the table. All 24 Chinese eyes were on the paper, and it was then being passed around. Cho took it first, looked, flipped backward and then forward. The next man took it from Cho, and the paper made the rounds around the round table. For what? he asked me. For customers, I said, of course, knowing that he didn't sell sodas or waters or any of the merchandise that my machine could offer for sale. How much? he asked. I'll deliver the machine to the store tomorrow if you agree. Customers buy from the machine. I keep the machine restocked and I take the money, I said. I knew it was the best business scenario for me. I knew it was a long shot for him to just say yes and allow it, and then to allow me to keep all of the revenue, but I purposely pitched my offer at a starting point that was best for me. In case it got shaved back, I'd still make some profit. Twelve Chinamen laughing. That's what I saw now. Even though we were not in the same conversation and the men had arrived at separate times in varying numbers, we all seemed to be having the same conversation now. Then they erupted into the Chinese language among themselves, fingering the photo and passing it around the table to each man a second time. Du Shao Quan? Most of them asked. I knew from working the fish store that meant how much money wish I would have brought a kimi with me. My first wife speaks Mandarin Chinese. She could have sat quietly beside me and later translated these men's Chinese convo to Chiasa in Japanese. Chiasa would then translate it to me in English. Because of how complicated that sounds is the reason I was seated alone. And of course, because in the back room there were only men. I was satisfied that I was there without my wives. It's funny how the gathered Chinamen spoke only in Chinese, but could hear any and all money talk in English. Suddenly, the eldest, who was the last man holding the photos of my vending machines, announced, Cho Feng Su, you pay rent, Cho said to me. I assumed that was what the elder had ordered him to say. How much, I asked. I hai kwa, the eldest said. One hundred, Cho said. I guess that's what the elder suggested. One hundred dollars per year? Good, I said. Then twelve Chinamen were laughing again. So I realized they wanted me to pay one hundred per month to be allowed to simply place my machine outside of Cho's store. Fifty dollars per month, I counter-offered. Or, fifteen hundred dollars for the horse ride machine and you. 
keep it, I said to Joe, knowing he could either make $600 per year renting the space to me at $50 per month or $12,000 a year owning the machine himself. If his customers gravitated towards it, even if he couldn't clear $1,000 a month worth of riders, if he took in half of that amount, he would still make $6,000 per year instead of $600 renting me the space. He had customers of all different backgrounds, including African Americans, who lined up and waited patiently for their orders to be prepared all of the time, and who often came with their children on the weekend, days and evenings. Taiguila, one of the men said, but he was not the elder. I knew what that meant. Chinese customers said those exact words when they thought their order was too expensive and they wanted the We Chinese discount at Cho's store. Now, 22 Chinese eyes were fixed on Cho, mine making 24. They began speaking in Chinese again among themselves. I imagined that at least one of them was saying that he could make a horse ride vending machine easily for $180 total, parts and labor. The Chinese are smart like that. They could take anyone in the world's idea or product and duplicate it, even though they had not invented it or thought of it first. I anticipated the competition because I know when dealing with the Chinese, the angle is always that they can make absolutely anything that the human mind could imagine and they could make it for cheap. I knew that winning this offer that I was making to Cho depended on the fact that I am the first person he encountered making him such an offer and that I had the machine available immediately. I already knew that whatever deal I might make with Cho, the deal would only last at maximum one year before he and they found a better, smarter, cheaper way to do it on their own. But that was cool. If I could draw in a year's worth of coins or sell the machine outright, I was still making a real profit either way. In one year, I would have expanded and made new locations for my machines and new contacts and new customers also, just like the Chinese could and would. Ichinier, the eldest said. 1,200, Cho said to me in English. I keep, he added. The 11 Chinamen began all speaking at one time. Then the speaking ceased, and the oldest man was the only one speaking. The rest, including Cho, listening to him. When the eldest one was done, Cho replied in Chinese to him in a very respectful tone. I imagined he was saying, Nah, this is my man here. He works at my shop. I can trust him. And of course he could. The eldest Chinaman stood and said in a low volume, with his full vocal force, Kui, which for me meant the same as him saying, Cool, let's do it. I took it as an approval. Bring tomorrow. Pay tomorrow, Jay said, sliding me my paperwork, which the elder had handed back to him. I pulled out a pen and handed it to Cho, as in asking him sign. It was only the horse vending machine photo, which I knew was not a proper contract. 
but for me, it was a gesture of his earnestness, as well as a way for me to fill out and complete his receipt and paperwork with his proper information. Up until then, Cho and I had no paperwork between us, yet I was embarrassed to ask him out loud, what's your full name? I knew that would be odd since Cho and I had been together for a long time, and he had made it clear that I was trustworthy to the other men at the table. He signed in English, in large letters, like it was his celebrity autograph. I was glad he did. He spells his Chinese name as Z-H-O-U. I had always had it spelled in my mind as C-H-O, which is how the word Cho is pronounced. I also discovered that Cho was his last name, and his first name was Yang. Shishi, I said, speaking the one Chinese word that I was absolutely sure about. It means thank you. And just my effort to speak that one word caused each of the men to nod their heads in approval. Dessert was Tang Yong, sticky rice balls, and Kang Tu Tong, red bean soup. I passed on both, but completed my fish meal nicely to show my gratitude, humility, comfort, character, and camaraderie. Chiasa had paid $700 for her horsey ride. We grossed a $500 profit on it since I agreed to sell it to Cho at $1,200. I made the decision without her. I hoped she would be pleased about it. If not, same as we ordered the first two machines together, we could order two more and keep it moving. I had another slick idea for my merchandise vending machine. It had everything to do with my first wife, Akimi. Amazed at vending machines in Japan selling kicks, I had envisioned owning one that sold Nikes, but I knew the Nike Corporation was a powerful monopoly. Getting a deal with them dispensing in America through a line of vending machines seemed unimaginable. Therefore, I came up with an alternative. The Chinese had the infamous Chinese slippers. For African Americans, they would come into style for a brief moment and then the style would switch. For the Chinese, they were always in style. If a badass Chinese flick came out, the Chinese slipper would reappear again. I began thinking about how it didn't matter if a product was considered cheap as long as it was in demand. Something that sells for $5 a pair is crazy paper if you sell 1 million pairs. And for the Chinese slipper that stays in use, I was sure there were way more than 1 million pairs being sold each year. I wanted to create a trend for a product I had imagined naming the New York Slipper, designed by my first wife. I had seen her dope off some customized Nikes with an airbrush. The couple of times that she rocked those kicks, 
that she designed with a mean-ass mini before I put the ring on her finger, she caused everybody who knew high fashion to do a double-triple take. And now, if I could get her to make a New York slipper, an exclusive design, and set up the vending machine for them at an exclusive location, for example, at the Museum of Modern Art, where Akimi had business contacts, I could sell the slippers to tourists for a mean price, say $50 a pair. If I purchased the white Chinese slippers in bulk in Chinatown and got Akimi to throw a crazy design on them, I could net $47 profit on each pair. Crazy. If the idea tanked and I only sold a low amount, say 100 pairs, that's $4,700 profit for a poor showing. If I did a decent job and sold 1,000 pairs, that's $47,000 for a decent take. If I did a real good and if I did real good and sold 10,000 pairs, that would be $470,000, damn. If I hit the bullseye, so to speak, and sold 1 million pairs, that's $47 million. My idea, even if it tanked, was worth too much money not to venture into it. So I would. I could imagine wealthy tourists walking around Central Park with their noses in the air while wearing a cheap Chinese slipper with a mean-ass New York design on it that they had paid a ridiculous $50 for from a vending machine strategically placed that they viewed as selling art, memorabilia, and even collector's items. Mail was in my box even though my house was empty. I grabbed it ran in and showered and dressed. I was heading back to the hotel for our last night in the suite. Tomorrow was Sunday, family day for us. I would gather my wives and my mother and sister and bring them into our new home. I was lying in the middle of the king-size hotel bed. Akimi was on my left, Chiasa was on my right. We were each fully clothed. I was opening the letter addressed to me from my man Black Sea, a Korean dude who is part of a breakdance crew in Busan, Korea. We linked in Asia and formed a friendship that felt like it had been in place for a long time, even though it was only a few weeks. He calls me his chingu, which is a hefty word in Korea for friendship. Korean friendship meant more to them than friendship seemed to mean in the USA. I must have felt close to him also because I gave him my address, which I never do. I'm sure the fact that he lived overseas made it an easier choice for me, but I also know it was a little more than that. He seemed like a friend I would keep for a lifetime. And that's how it felt. Now I was opening his letter. It was written in Korean, except for his beginning introduction where he wrote, Mr. Manager. That's what he calls me, his manager, even though he is a college student, a physics major, and I am younger than him. He continues in English saying, please ask your Korean wife to read this letter to you. I handed the letter to Akimi. She read it to herself first. She then translated it into Japanese one line at a time. 
and spoke it to Chiasa. Chiasa then translated it into English and spoke it out loud to me. It went like this. Akimi said in Korean, Sarang hanen. Then she said to Chiasa in Japanese, Sai ai. Then Chiasa said to me in English, My dear love. Then Chiasa laughed, then I laughed, then Akimi laughed, and now we were all laughing. I said to Chiasa, Come on now. You know he didn't call me his dear love. Chiasa laughed and said, He did so. Akimi laughed. I put my hand on my head, ran it over my Caesar cut, and laughed at myself and at my global situation. That letter was the beginning of my fashion export business from New York to Busan, Korea, through one of Black Sea's uncle's friends who lived out here in New York and needed me to be a supplier. He would then send the clothes I chose and purchased and sold to him to Black Sea's uncle, who was opening a New York slash Tokyo fashion boutique in Seoul, Korea. Black Sea admired my style and fashion so much when I was in Korea that he believed I could make his uncle, who had the connects and would handle the shipping, a rich guy. He said his uncle could not get rich on his own because he had no style and no eye for fashion and no way to communicate properly in English to do business with English-speaking fashion wholesalers or retailers, even though he was opening a high-fashion Western-style shop on a hunch. Black Sea said his uncle believed that he could get middle-income Koreans whose fashion tastes were just becoming awakened and who wanted highly fashionable, high-priced clothing and accessories for discounted prices to become his best customers. I was in. 